We're busy. Never bored, let me tell you. Yeah. That's good. We are uh, between work and church and everything else. We stay busy. Yeah. That's good. I'm sure you too. Yeah. Carrie and I were just talking. She just picked me up. I got one of my cars in the shop. And so she picked me up from work. And we were just talking about how <laughs> this season of our life between soccer and basketball and kids and, and church. And we started leading a small group, um, which is a new experience for us. And we're excited. And it's one more night of the week. <laughs> We've got things to do. So it's good. Yeah, we've uh, led small groups off and on for probably 12 years. Oh, so, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, sure. different places. It's uh, The hard part is if you're playing host and leading the meeting at the same time. Um, my advice is move it to a point where someone else is the host in their home and you're leading the meeting there. Yeah, that's, that's not a bad idea. We've... Uh this particular semester we're doing it at the church um ah, good so that makes it a little bit easier we've got some kid like our kids ministry rooms are available to us we can put the kids in there they'll play when we've done it at our home uh we can't get our kids they give us about 45 minutes of quiet and then it's <laughs> i need this i need that can i get this so we decided this time we weren't going to do it at our home so so far so good um yeah, so we're just going to have a conversation. I'm already recording. Uh, I just, you know, kind of do conversational style interviews. Um, I do a daily sort of meditation or thought or, or exploration into, you know, things that help people to figure out how to be vulnerable, how to be the, how to maintain accountability, things like that. And so a lot of the interviews I do, um, are sort of really just centered on what that looks like in other people's lives. Um, and, you know, I'm excited to talk to you because there's a lot of intersections in your life where I think vulnerability and accountability are, are really um, not just important, but I think almost, you know, absolutely necessary. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, maybe we start by just telling us a little bit about yourself. I mean, I, as a pastor of a church, as a CEO of a major, you know, destination with lots of people that you're, you're responsible for in probably one of the craziest times in, in our, our social experience, um, you know, what it's like to have employees in that space, what it's like to manage attendees in that space, what it's like to just all of it. I mean, you know, I think you're probably one of the few people that's got a very unique perspective on what's happening in the world. And you happen to be doing it from San Diego, California, which is also a, a state <laughs> that yeah. seems to be a nation unto itself. <clears throat> yeah, that's really interesting here in that regard. A quick resume for, for you. You sure. pastor a church in San Diego and and Remind, remind me of the name. I want to say it's Pacific Beach, but I don't know if I have that accurate. That's right. Yes, I'm associate pastor at Pacific Beach Christian Church. Okay. Okay. So you pastor there in your quote-unquote free time, and you're <laughs> the CEO of the San Diego Convention Center, or is it actually a larger yes. entity? No, it's the San Diego Convention Center Corporation. Uh, we are a 
public benefit 501c3 corporation that was formed by the city of San Diego in the late 80s to manage the convention center on behalf of the community. And so we host conventions, trade shows, public events with the intent of creating economic impact for the community. And in a non-pandemic year, we've been averaging about 1.3 billion in economic impact locally. And so as we continue to recover through the pandemic, um, that's still our purpose is to be a premier gathering place. And um, I've got a, a bit of a history in doing gathering over my career. I actually grew up in a little town in Western Oklahoma and, and we always joked that it was so flat where I grew up in the middle of the country that you could watch your dog run away for three days. So, <laughs> you know, it, was, it, it wasn't the end of the world. It was actually a really fantastic place to grow up um, with great friends and, and great character building and learning the work ethic that I think I've carried most of my life. Yeah, And, you know, my first paid job was at 12 hoeing cotton in a cotton field with my grandparents. Made wow. a dime an hour. So wow. <laughs> I was in the tall cotton, as we would say back in those days. And so moved on from there, was an electrician, journeyed out as an electrician and uh, worked my way um, uh, into a college scholarship um, so I uh, got laid off uh, my electrical job and got a scholarship and went off to college. And God works in mysterious ways, my friend. Uh, I had, a, had an associate's degree in science with an, with an emphasis in physics and wanted to transfer to a four-year university because I'd gone to a community college. And so I decided three weeks before the semester started that I was going to go. And so the admissions wasn't easy in a three-week window. And the, yeah, only degree <laughs> the only degree program that would accept all my credits and give me my grade point uh, was the theater department. So I became a theater major to get into the university thinking I would find my place and figure out what to do. And everything I'd ever learned with construction and physics and anything uh, applied to performing arts. And so came a lighting and set designer and started then from there doing summer stock, managing historic theaters to the performing arts center and small exhibit hall and stadium in Vegas to the Vegas convention center to um, the salt palace to the Olympics in 02 and Sydney in 20 uh, in 2000 um, and uh, doing spectator services. And then a contractor, a national, I was a senior VP nationally for a convention contractor. And then from there to um, our own company and then Louisville, Kentucky and the Kentucky State Fair Board right. and that ended here in San Diego. And along the way, about age 50, uh, I woke up one day and thought, you know, there might just be more to life. And I'd grown up in a Christian home, but I understood that I was being called to do something bigger and something that maybe could provide hope and thought and maybe be able to spur someone else to be able to find that peace that I found. So I, at the age of 50, went and got a master's of divinity and uh, was ordained in the summer of 2019. Uh, so 
and it, I, I went to two different seminaries um, and MDivs as, as the acronym is, is not an easy degree to get. Um, and it's on average about 76 college hours, but because I ended up transferring, I ended up with 92. So I have a bachelor's degree and a master's in divinity and uh, probably have enough college credits for a couple of doctorates if I'd have gone a different path. But right. um, no regrets, have a great life. And uh, it's, you know, it's all a matter of perspective. Yeah, it's amazing, man. You've done so much. And it's, it's part of the reason why I wanted to have you on, because I, I have an affinity for people who have worked and played in different industries. And I think the more like people can travel and the more people can work in different industries, the more they start to understand sort of how interconnected everybody is. And I had forgotten that you were involved in the Olympics. So I'm going to actually start there because okay. I have a couple of like one as an events person myself, who's done like uh, uh, what you've done to some, like a very small degree. Um, I'm fascinated by the Olympics much less in terms of like, I love the athleticism. I love the stories. I love, you know, I mean, these guys put their bodies through so much and they put their lives through so much for, for these Olympic dreams. I'm more fascinated by what the Olympics has come or has become in terms of an event. And, and realistically, like if I remember you, your Olympic experience was, was, pre 9-11 or post 9-11 um, immediately after uh, but I had uh, a little bit of experience I, I was brought in in the winter of 98 1998 okay. to begin putting together what was called spectator services for the games in uh, San Diego I mean sorry Salt Lake and what had happened is there had been a scandal with the leadership there and they mm -hmm. had to replace everyone. And that's when Mitt Romney came in and they had all kinds of budget problems. And, and so right. uh, I was brought in at that same time and we were um, an independent organization. They knew, they, the Olympic Committee knew that Utah wasn't going to let um, ourselves be shown in a, in a not so good light. And so... Uh, all of uh, the tourism related organizations came together across the state and we formed what was called the Visitor Information Services Coalition and they tapped me to be the CEO. And so um, we brought together 110 organizations that represented close to 10,000 member businesses and we provided hotel accommodation reservations, we did visitor information, we did um, visitor hotlines. We had people on the streets for wayfinding. We had people in every con competition venue. But I got to go to Sydney, Australia as an executive on loan for six weeks. Um, and Leah, uh, my wife, went with us as well. And, and so Leah and I lived and worked in Sydney for six weeks in 2000 um, during the summer games of 2000. And that was all in anticipation of learning what to do in 02. And then 9-11 hit, and that was September, and the Olympics opened on February 8th, is what I recall, in 2002. And so wow. 
um, we didn't know after 9-11 what would happen. And, you know, the security was unbelievable. But to your point, any event in any arena, stadium, sledding venue, whatever it is, by itself is a pretty monumental task. And then when you put together all of the different competitions and all of the venues, and they're spread within a 90 mile radius of the venue, the host venue city, uh, it gets to be unbelievable. Um, and so it's thousands of volunteers, hundreds of workers, and the whole thing has to be done um, I would say from a point of view, past event planning and into choreography. And so it's because this can't happen until this happens. And if this doesn't happen, you have to adjust. It's just like a dance partner. And so interesting. I love that analogy because that puts it into a different frame of mind. I think for some people who may be listening, who've never done what, what you've done. Yeah, you know, what's interesting is uh, any of us that have been to an event, we get sort of turned on by different things. I I go to a concert, I love to look at the lighting and the sound arrays and see how they've done that. Um, but because of all of the training from 30 years back, uh, the first thing I do is I want to know where the exit is I'm going to go to in an emergency. Yeah. So, you know, and and that's a a blessing and a curse for those of us who've done events. I'm sure you've done the same thing. What's my path out of here? If I, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And then I I feel like you get jaded at some point because you start to look at lighting and setup and set design or staging or queuing or, you know, all those different things, how many points of sale. And I find myself not in the present moment of (laughs) what I'm, what I think I'm there to experience. Um, because I'm looking at all of the other bits and pieces of, of how it goes. And I think sometimes it, it, because of what we know, it takes away a little bit of the mystery of what other people are experiencing. They're just there and they're just, they're feeling it and experiencing it on a different wavelength. And I'm trying to like dissect how they did stuff. (laughs) Yeah, I know. And I I do the same thing, but you know, what I found as I got a little older is if I got to the venue, whether it's sporting or whether it's a concert at a theater or whatever, if I go a little bit early, I can take a lot of that off the table. And in some ways, um, I'm not overwhelmed like a lot of people who aren't in the business can, yeah. I think. Um, and when the act or the art or whatever it is that's being presented does come on, feel like I can actually get into it more because I've taken everything else off the table because I've either, you know, rationalized to myself, this is what they're doing. And this is what I, you know, and, and I can appreciate the art form itself rather than getting caught up in the spectacle of all of the technology and presentation skill that's around. And, and not to mention, you know, and and I know you've been backstage um, lots of times as well. And, uh, one of my very favorite things to do is to call a show, stage manage a show. Um, mm-hmm. Love that. Um, now, uh, I, I kind of got that out of my system at a younger age, but uh, I still enjoy being backstage and watching people do what they have to do to, to get things to happen. And, 
And that, that's true whether it's an event, a theatrical performance, um, you know, whether it's your kids rehearsing for a recital. Uh, in some degree, it's true at church because we have an ordo that we follow. Mm-hmm. And if we do this correctly, we're going to provide an opportunity and a space for someone to actually connect with God in a more meaningful way because we've taken care of sort of all of that noise leading up to it. Yeah. It's, it's funny you say that. I just had a, a conversation with uh, the leadership at my church where I I'm heavily involved and, and I work. And uh, when I started there, Carrie and I both started on the connections team out front, greeting guests and doing that. And it's, I love people in these situations I don't, I'm not the guy that really kicks off a conversation or walks up and says, Hey, I'm so-and-so who are you? Is it your first time here? That's just not my comfort zone. And so for the last year or so I've worked on the facilities team doing exactly what you just said. And I, what I expressed to them was my ministry is if I can help create a space that is absent of distractions and they can just focus on the experience. And if that opens their hearts and softens them to hear the message or to have a closer relationship, then that's where I feel like I can best serve. And so I love that you shared that because that's exactly it for me. Like our production team, our building, the all the different parts of the environments, that's where I feel like if I can put that together in a way that the people coming then feel as comfortable as we can make them, then they're going to hear better. They're going to experience better. They're going to connect with people better. And at the end of the day, that's, that's what I want. That's what we hope to achieve for them. So I love that you put it in that and and framed it that way. I'm curious what your thoughts are um, about the Olympics now, like from, from multiple perspectives, because like security is obviously post nine 11. It's, I mean, I, I read something the other day that this particular winter Olympics happening now um, they spent just over $1 billion on security alone, which is, you know, mind blowing um, to some extent, but also like it's happening in China and the ratings seem to be lower than they've ever been. And there's, there's more protesting, you know, not necessarily physically, but, you know, verbally and through social media. And there's a lot of conversation around, you know, what, what do the Olympics mean today and, and, and do you, you know, having been involved in a couple of them, you know, what are your thoughts on that as it evolves into a, into a different construct with, with where we're at today? Yeah, I think a lot of the message is lost, actually, on the, on the community worldwide. Um, if you're involved in any form, in any way around the Olympics, um, and I've said this, Leah has said this, it, it was probably the most meaningful era of our life because wow. you're looking for something so much greater than a competition you know and you know they use the the latin verbs uh, words for higher faster stronger which is altius fortis and i can't remember the third one. but it's you know and, and that's been around for a century and the the interesting thing is, is that it's about the world coming together to produce this unbelievable phenomenon that culminate, cultivates into this um, competition, but it's not about 
the winners and the losers. It's about the world coming together in a way to produce something that doesn't happen any other time. You know, if you look at the number of countries who participate in the Olympics um, and how they work together with a common set of rules and a community that comes together that respects each other's ability, you're not going to find that in practically anything else. It doesn't exist in government. It doesn't exist in church. It doesn't exist in so many um, aspects of our life. And it, to me, it's still a great example of how we can be ecumenical uh, from a church point of view, uh, how we can be um, respectful of every religion and every tradition. And, and, you know, we have an example of how we could sort of put all those things aside and come together if we chose to. And, and that's so much of what the Olympics mean to me. It's an emotional ride greater than anything I've ever experienced. Um, you'll be walking down the street and you'll have someone in, in, within a 200-yard length of space. You could hear 30 to 40 different languages. You could hear people laughing and enjoying the experience and in awe of the community they were in. Um, you could see people in a competition venue who came together and would get quiet when somebody came off the jump and then cheer when they land all at the same time. And, you know, it's, it's a, sort of a, this version of harmony that um, you don't experience in lots of places. I love that you said if we choose to because I think almost all of it comes down to that. Yeah. And, and I think it's interesting to me because I've, I've not ever attended or been a part of an Olympic games. I remember as a, as a, as a child, I think it was 84 or 88 when the Olympic games were in LA. Uh, I think it was 80, it was at 84. And yeah. I remember being in that space mentally that you just talked about, like, watching with such awe and just really seeing all these countries and all these things. And, and I don't know, I mean, I was young, but I don't know if it was because it was like the height of the cold war or if it was, I don't, or because it was in my backyard growing up in Las Vegas and it was just, you know, a few hundred miles away being just completely in awe of what that looked like having all these countries together and flags waving and competing in and but now it just seems and maybe it is the message that's been lost and i don't know if that's because we have 24-hour news and everything's being streamed and we have such access to everybody through social media and and just all the different layers of how society's changed but i love the idea of all those different cultures and people being together in harmony what a great word to use to describe that um because I do, I, I, we watch the games um, and we watch, I think, individuals more than we watch sports nowadays because they do celebritize the, the athletes. Um, and, and there's so many other athletes whose stories get lost that, that, you know, 
I don't think we put enough energy into. Um, what are your What are your thoughts on? And and we didn't really do a pre interview on this. So like, if there's anything you don't want to answer, if there's anything you're like, I, I'm not going down that road. Feel free to say that. Sure. Um, uh, but I'm curious what your thoughts are. Um, I had a conversation with some friends the other day around why the Olympics weren't as as watched or why they weren't as important anymore. Um, and one of the one of the people brought up, you know, we're boycotting because it's in China and there's humanitarian issues and there's <laughs> There's all these different things happening in in China that led them to choose to boycott the Olympics. And, you know, I can see that on the face of it, but as I sort of unpacked that and sort of thought through it, um, I almost felt like, well, let's find a country that isn't doing <laughs> some things that they shouldn't be doing these days. <laughs> let's like, where's the bar? Where's the standard? And and do we boycott the country or the athletes or the advertisers or like, where's the line there? So I wonder what, I wonder what, especially from like a Christian perspective or just from an event perspective, because I'm sure you've had vendors or events or, you know, things that have happened at your own convention center where maybe there's some moral questions yeah, you know, ironically, most of the time when people object to something, they typically boycott protests or demonstrate against the organizer, not the host. Um, and so that's a, an, an interesting distinction uh, of actually boycotting the country uh, or boycotting the organization itself because of the host. It would be... Um, sort of tantamount to saying, I'm not going to go to a small group at my church because I don't think the person whose home we're meeting in meets my standards of ethical behavior. Now, maybe you feel strongly about that. You don't want to be near them, but does that mean you wouldn't zoom in to get the content from a leader who doesn't live there? Um, and, and so everyone establishes their own process and, you know, they've even come up with a theology now called process theology. And that's, you know, a part of what we talk about is how do we get there? And so, um, and, and the other aspect of this is that typically when you are going to host an event like the Olympics, that begins 10 years out. And so, yeah. and then, you know, you're named it typically seven years out so that you can be prepared. And so boycotting today really should include a total picture of what was going on four, seven, 10 years ago. Uh, and then I think if you are totally informed and you feel strongly about it, it's, you know, you're, you're not not watching because it's in China, you're not watching because the IOC chose China. And so I think it's a perspective issue. Um, and how do you determine what, what you're really standing for? And, and yeah. listen, I mean, Churchill was one of the people I, I love to study in history. And 
And one of his favorite things to say is if uh, you have no enemies, you've never stood for anything. Yeah. And so um, I think of that when I think of what's going on in other countries. And, and I, I certainly have issue with a lot of regions of the world that um, discount people who would be called the other. And I'm, you know, any one of us can suffer from a privilege of someone else, but it gets into varying degrees of pressure, even in our own communities. Um, you and I as men are more privileged than women. You and I as uh, people who are considered Caucasian or white are more privileged than people of color. You and I are more privileged than indigenous populations in North America and, and any region in the world. We as Americans are more privileged than people in China and Russia. I mean, yeah. you know, and, and so what do you consider acceptable? And if you're going to take a stand on something, if you're going to put that kind of energy into it, I think there are a lot of other things that you could focus on rather than not watching the Olympics on NBC. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's an interesting thing for me. I often wonder like how, how much of it is um, sort of armchair quarterbacking or like what we call social justice, like this, like the, the hashtag activism, right? Mm -hmm. it's social media activism where, it's easy to say stuff, but we're not really like, what are we really doing? And it's hard for me to not have some judgments and wonder like, well, how much of that is virtue signaling and how much of that is because I don't know what other people are doing sure. the rest of the time, right? We're just in this conversation. And so oftentimes I just sort of try to really think about, okay, that's just data. It's just information. That's what some perspectives are and leave the judgments in the the lack of understanding out of it because I've found myself as a young adult in my early teens and twenties, attaching myself to all these different uh, causes. And then, and then, you know, arguing with people or protesting certain things or, and then the more I would learn about it, cause I just have a natural incl inclination to research and learn and get on the inside of it. I would find that all the headlines and all the things that I thought to be the reasons I was protesting were just so much grayer <laughs> than, than what I thought. And it's like, yes, totalitarianism is bad. And does this really qualify as that? Because there's all these other dynamics. And, you know, um, so I find it harder and harder to take such a black and white stand on, on those things. Um, and I, I think that also lends to sort of the pastoral journey that you've had, because if we follow the teachings of Jesus, like those are exactly the people we should be hanging out with right. the ones that are broken or damaged or that have different, different perspectives. Um, you know, there's, there's. And I don't have to tell you this, but for our listeners' sake, there's story after story after story of Jesus going to the least of uh -huh. you know, in a time where, you know, caste systems and 
men didn't speak to women and, and, and Jews didn't speak to Sumerians and all these, like, it was just, I would say probably more polarizing and divided than we are today. Although sometimes it feels, it certainly feels like we're more different. Um, and so, yeah, I found myself certainly listening to those things and going, okay, that's interesting. What would you say um, is like a good way to sort of two part um, navigate that for yourself because I anxiety and, and, and all of those things that come with disagreement, I think are at like an all time high, right? Um, what would you sort of counsel someone who is really struggling with that to, to overcome yeah, so in life, um, whether it's with your uh, faith tradition, uh, and I say it that way because, um, you know, you and I both are Christian, um, although we have different church traditions, uh, we likely theologically have some differences, um, and that's normal. Um, you know, you and your spouse, me and my spouse, our best friends, whoever that is, you know, we're not clones. We all have, you know, a, a thought here or there, but it's what we do with those thoughts and how we live our lives that make the difference. So it would be really easy. And, I, and I'm a person that can carry stress and it just eat at me and, and people probably don't even know sometimes, uh, but then it manifests itself and I'm either sick or I'm exhausted or something happens. Um, and all of us have something that triggers our anxiety. Uh, one of the things I've tried to learn and do along the way is I would much rather live by example and create an opportunity for someone to ask me, why is it different for you than for me to um, sort of grab a Bible and hit them with it? Um, and, you know, I, I, feel like I have plenty of opportunity to be able to explain why I feel an inner peace and why I don't just collapse at a stressful day. And, and, you know, I want to find a way of leading and being able to create an example so that people ask me. And so that takes a lot of pressure off. And then it holds yourself accountable in how you lead your life, how you live your life. Um, and then it's a, a piece of awareness uh, that comes in, I think. Uh, and, and when I say peace, I'm talking about um, you know, uh, the peace that surpasses all understanding, not a piece of pie, but peace. Yeah. 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 And, and so I want to be clear that you know, there's a peace and, and comfort that comes when you are being true to yourself. And if you just pay attention and make it about everyone around you instead of you, you're going to see opportunity to say, hey, are you okay? And, you know, often there's someone who's going to say, how are you doing this? How do you, you know, why aren't you crying right now? Why aren't you? And, you know, sometimes you just say, listen, I cried earlier. And, you know, but here's the difference. And just imagine at least in my case, how much worse this could be without God in my life. And so rather than being um, someone who I guess would be a traditional evangelist or proselytizer, I, I prefer to try to live out by example and let people ask me. Yeah. 
That's I love it because you actually answered the second part of that question, which is how would you recommend helping those who are um, the word that comes to my mind is uneducated, but that's not the right word because that has a negative connotation. But people who are maybe not at that same place as you yet, and you just answered it. It's through modeling that behavior and through being that light, right? And and one of the one of my favorite phrases that that I've adopted um, was one that you actually shared with me a few years ago, and you just said it again is is living it out. And so I want to kind of unpack that a little bit because I think that's where, for me, as I've deepened my faith and reignited my relationship with God, the, the biggest piece for me has been learning how to live it out because my human side, my, my earthly person wants to often do the opposite. I often want to respond with, you know, an eye for an eye or, or anger or frustration, or I want to tear someone down who isn't seeing things maybe in a, what I think is the proper perspective, right? And so my learning how to live that out, um, for me, the, the phrase that, that sort of turned that on for me was what is what does love require of me today, right? What does love require of me in this situation? You know, but I love the way that you put it when you and I spoke years ago about, you know, how do we live this out? And, and sort of as a litmus test for people that maybe we're looking to as mentors or looking to as, as, as those people in our lives that we're going to listen to and trust is, are they living it out? Are they just saying the things, you know? And so talk to me a little bit about that. Like, how did you land in that space where like, that was the thing for you and, and how do you implement that um, sort of in your, in your career as a, as a CEO of a convention center, which doesn't have a, a faith-based lens to really operate from, but I'm sure you don't separate the two. No, I don't. So, you know, what's interesting is that, um, and you put it really well, our human side, um, no matter what we try and do, we're going to react um, in a human way at one time or another. Um, we're still going to be mad. We're still going to be hurt. We're still going to be doing things we probably shouldn't do for our own mental or physical health. I mean, that's, I mean, that's just, being human and mm -hmm. part of that is is trying to find a way of realizing that i'm not perfect and i never will be and that's okay um, but to your point what i told you is not original someone else had told me and um i think the key is something else you touched on is trust now, so much of what we do in our life comes through experience. And I wish I could tell you the source. I, I can't remember the source, but I remember the, the context in which it came was for every negative experience we have in any particular setting, it takes three positive just to get back to neutral. So let's say that, you know, I uh, bash my kids in some way, you know, and I, I pick on them on a particular issue that I don't like, and it's not a good exchange. And they get angry with me. This is a real life. I mean, you know, we all at a certain age have someone, whether it's your child or someone else's that looks up to you. 
if you create a space where they feel like you know they're either embarrassed or hurt or, or diminished or ashamed or whatever that is if you do that enough times you're never going to catch up on the positive so if you always think about how you react to something and you think about that one time that you hurt someone's feelings or that you diminished them or treated them like the other you've got to create three more times of a positive experience just to get back to a place where there might be a chance of recovering and so you know, I keep that in the back of my head on every response I give. And I know I deliver unpopular news on occasion, you know, whether it's at work and my secular side or even at the church side. Somebody is not going to like what I say at some level. Um, and I have to be sure that I'm grounded in facts as much as I can be and my own faith and present myself in a way that I can live with. And then if I make a mistake in that, then I need to find a way uh, and frankly invent three good experiences so that that person and I have a chance uh, yeah. starting over. Um, and I, I really hold tight to that. Um, but trust is, is something that is really hard to define. Um, yeah. If you really think about who you trust uh, and think of another person who you really trust, what are the similarities? And they're going to be a different scale. I trust Leah more than anyone on this planet. Um, and it's for a variety of reasons. And it's mostly because of the experiences and the times that she's been there for me when I needed her to be and wanted yeah. her to be. And even when I didn't know she was, um, and yet I have lots of close friends and, you know, uh, I think of Wade, who's like a brother to me and I trust him implicitly, but it's not for the same reasons. Right. So trust is sort of this, um, sliding scale of definition and once you give your trust to someone, if they harm that or damage that, it can be devastating. And so trust is not something any of us by nature give out very uh, lightly. Uh, we're going to make ourselves incredibly vulnerable every time we trust someone. Yeah. And that's why we have to work at it. It's interesting. One, I, I want to thank you for saying that you invent positive things to say. Because I feel like positivity is low for me. I'm, I consider myself to be more pragmatic. And mm -hmm. so a lot of times, you know, I, I just had a conversation with someone about like how often we think people within our businesses or within our work and and it was like, well, the thank you is your paycheck. Like you got paid to do, like all you did was what you were paid to do, but that's not enough, right? We have to thank them. We have to show gratitude. We have to give appreciation. But on the surface of that, I, I sometimes have to really like invent. And, and I think in some ways I've always felt that that was a little fraudulent 
So I love hearing that you sometimes also have to do that because I think it's the truth. Like we, we do have to maybe look for something or invent something. Um, and then, you know, trust for me is such an interesting thing. Uh, I did a seminar once in one of the conversations, one of the exercises we did was talking about trust and, and it was, you know, um, interacting with people and then sort of saying, looking them eye to eye and saying, do I trust you? You know, I trust you. I don't trust you. I don't. And, and for me in that exercise, I was thinking explicitly about what I leave my three-year-old with you overnight. Mm -hmm. And I didn't trust anybody. <laughs> it was like, no, I don't know any of you. Like I, I don't. Um, but then I listened to another pastor who talked about trust, who said, you know, one of the best ways to, to develop trust is to just trust people. Like you, like there's that vulnerability piece, like somebody has got to go first. So it's like, you know, I may not trust you with my child, but I'll trust you to drive my car. Yeah. Or you my know, pet, you know, or, or watch my pet, right. There's a value proposition there of where, and then if that goes well, we'll move on and we'll move on. And so, yeah, I think trust is a really interesting thing. Cause I feel like nowadays it's, it's a, a very rare commodity. People don't trust each other. There's so much and I feel like it was better when we didn't know what everybody thought. Like <laughs> it was better when, and, and I don't know that to be true, but in some ways I feel like it was better that we didn't know who the racists were. We didn't know who the misogynists were. We didn't know who the, you know, what everybody thought about, you know, Western medicine versus other things, you know, it's just because we could not formulate such polarizing belief systems towards one another. We just, we knew we both liked the Dallas Cowboys and that was enough <laughs> we could, or whatever the case may be. Right. Um, well, so what's fascinating is that trust doesn't work without relationship and, and in my life, at least, you know, so, you know, I've got, uh, uh, and, and vulnerability comes into play. So, you know, you got trust, you got relationship, you got vulnerability and they're all interconnected. And, yeah. um, I trust people more the longer I've known them and the longer I've watched and experienced them. Sure. And so trusting someone um, who I first met generally doesn't happen much with me. Yeah. Um, the exception to that is when someone I trust tells me I can trust them. So right. for instance, if you told me, rip you can trust this person i'd trust them with my life that's good for me because i trust you yeah um on the other hand if it's someone i just met and they tell me that like you know i don't know you uh, yeah. we haven't been around each other for years and you know i uh, i want to trust you give me time and and reasons to but in the interim i'm not going to um, yeah it just doesn't happen and that's how so much of what we do in life is connected is, is through relationship. That's how we learn to trust more with God. And it's how we learn to trust more with our family and friends. It's that engagement. Yeah. And sometimes it's not where you have to be an active participant necessarily. Okay never underestimate the power of being present. You know, if you're in the room with your kids, if you never say a word, 
you're still there and they know mm. that you know if you are involved with a small group and you never really speak out on anything you're there you're present now this really comes into play when you have people who are going through a really difficult journey in their life whether it's you know the loss of a loved one whether they're dying themselves whether it's loss of a job a divorce i mean there's a thousand scenarios you don't have to be there you can't solve it but by being there you're expressing god's love in a way that nothing else can do simply by holding their hand and saying i'm here never ever underestimate the power of being present yeah, I love that. I love that. Um, yeah, I I feel like the relationship piece is a huge part of what brought me to want to do this podcast mm. um, because I, I talk a lot about we don't live in a vacuum. We all have impact on one another. We all interact and engage. Um, and if we aren't interacting or engaging, we need to be because one, we won't have people to hold us accountable. Um, if we're not interacting with others, right. Cause because of our relationship, I can, I can say to you, or you can say to me, you know, this could be better. This could be different. Hey, does this align with what I know your core beliefs to be or your core values to be or whatever that looks like. And I just feel like so many people, especially since I have adult children now who are in their young, early twenties, the difference in their interaction is so digital. It's so online. It's so, it's also very short. Everything is just like the attention span and the desire to interact is is very very short and in some cases that's intentional in some cases it's just what they've come to um i've recently started to to watch tiktok to see if i want to engage in it to see if there's it's a platform i can use for for get helping to get the message out the podcast out um, other businesses i'm involved in our church is considering how do we use that platform to help reach people um and and I've not engaged, but the other night I went to comment on something and, and it was a, I think I, I couldn't even comment more than like 140 characters or 200 characters. And I was halfway through a thought and it was like, you reached your character limit. And I was like, well, I, and I just deleted my comments. Like, well, I can't, if I can't engage fully, I don't want to engage. And it struck me that like, there are these boundaries being put up on, we want you to engage, but we don't want a full thought. We just like, how do you, dumb that down um and so i wonder how relationships and relational because so much so much of what we're talking about requires richness requires depth and and we're stripping that away from our younger generations to have which is part of the reason why we wanted to do a small group it's part of the reason why my wife and i decided to, to lead a small group was we want deeper richer connections with people and we were like, okay, well then we have to go, we have to make that happen. Um, yeah. Um, so you have hundreds of employees mm -hmm. and, and I, I have to imagine many of them are younger. Mm -hmm. are, you, are you seeing that same sort of thing play out in your, 
day to day? Not, not as much as you might think because the accountability is at a different level. Um, you know, okay. we're very, um, you know, we look at an integrated operations plan. You, you are a person driving a lift. You're expected to move this much product, um, you know, out of the warehouse and onto the floor, whether it's tables, chairs, whatever. And in one hour, you should be able to move this amount. And, you know, there are rules about what you can and cannot do when you're operating equipment. So, I mean, you know, some of it can be regimented or even legislated if you want to go to that extreme. But the other piece is um, the reason relationship, even if it's in a work setting, is so important um, is because when you hold someone accountable and you've got a relationship with them, and, and in my own case, you know, who I'm accountable for to my board, if I have a relationship with my board and they are giving me direction or critiquing in a constructive way, I'm going to take that in a much better light because I have a relationship with them. And so whether you're working with someone, working for someone or someone reports to you, building that relationship allows the accountability to get from being um, something that is bashing to something that is constructive and a learning opportunity. Yeah. And, and that's what I think people forget. The other thing, um, and I wish I could tell you for sure where I heard this, but I can't remember, but um, if you're nothing without a title, you'll never be anything with it. And yeah. so some of the best leaders in our organization aren't called a supervisor or a manager and people will follow and listen to them. And they have this sort of natural ability to lead. And those are people that you want to get their thoughts and opinions, because if you have them being able to back what you stand for and and it not be just because you're the boss or just because you're the religious leader. If you have these internal champions, then these internal champions are going to do those debates that, and you never know, you know, they're yeah. going to either say, this is what we need to do. And here's why, you know, I get that that seems harsh on the decision that Rip just made, but think of it from this point of view. So every organization should work to have internal and external champions. It's a technique in sales that Miller Hyman um, taught years ago, but it applies to leadership from my point of view. Um, I know if I've got um, something really controversial that I've got to roll out uh, with a policy, I'm going to go to five or six people that aren't even listed in management and talk to them about it because I know they're going to sell it to the rest of the workforce. Um, and they love the fact that I trust them enough to find out what they think. Yeah. And it's because we've worked hard at being in the room together. So, you know, back to relationship, relationship ties to accountability. It allows for it to become constructive and not destructive. And that's, I think that's a mistake that a lot of people with titles make or owners make 
is, you know, why am I doing this? Well, because I said so, you know, that. Yeah. Well, even parenting, we, Carrie and I yeah. decided early on in parenting that because I said so was not a, was not acceptable answer when our kids ask us, why do I have to do this? Why do I have to do that? What, what's happening here? And, you know, we've moved, you know, from state to state, we've, yep. we've changed jobs, we've done, you know, we've created businesses and done some things that have required us to be out of the home quite a bit at times. And we've always felt that sharing in those decisions with our kids and creating accountability for ourselves, like our kids have permission to come to us and say, you've taught us this principle. I don't think you're living up to that principle right now, or I don't see how this aligns with that. And there's nothing more empowering and frustrating than to have your 14 year old son mentor you at the dinner table <laughs> with things that you've taught him that he's going, you know, dad, I think <laughs> and him being correct and being in, in or having your six year old properly counsel you in the right context with things that and, and it's amazing to watch that and I see so many parents you know who don't apply those sort of same principles of of like apologizing to your kids and owning it and right. instead of just going well this is what you know and there are, look we're if I'm driving down a highway and my kid wants McDonald's and they can't have McDonald's sometimes it's just because I said, we'll explain it yeah. to you later. <laughs> like we're all, we're all human. We all got to just sometimes get through the day. But I think it's a really great point to talk about. Like it is relational. It should be collaborative. Yeah. Right. Otherwise, otherwise it's, it's with absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Right. Like we're, we're going to start to believe our own press clippings. That's, <laughs> that's never beneficial um, for us. So Here's the other thing that I would throw out there is that the same principle works in a faith setting because, and, and, you know, our traditions are a little bit different, even though we're Christian in our church, we have elders, they have mm -hmm. no authority, um, but they are the ones who give counsel to clergy and to the spiritual well-being of the church. Yeah. So if we want something, if we feel God calling us to go a particular direction, they become our internal champions. And we go to them so that it's not just the senior pastor and me going and, and saying this is what we're going to do. It becomes a place where the elders are able to fine tune yeah. it, give us input, and then take that to the participants and say, hey, you know, this is a really great option for us. Here's what we should consider, and here's why. And it's not because Rip or Brian said so. It's because, you know, God's calling us in a direction, and they've got some training and some experience that maybe applies yeah. here. And then externally, that's where you become involved with ecumenical, you know. It's just because um, the Presbyterians or the Methodists or you know, um, our Muslim friends down the street um, are different than us. Doesn't mean we can't work on projects and for a greater good, because, you know, if we look and at the tenants and what we all stand for, those pieces are not that different. Our paths are different. Yeah. But the goal isn't. And so yeah. um, that's why I believe so strongly in the language of internal and external champions. Yeah, I love that. And I think 
I think that one of the important things there is like focusing on the similarities, right? Focusing on the commonalities of our goals versus the differences. Because if we just focus on the differences, then yeah, we're not going to get any closer to one another. I mean, I think so many of us get mired in like the the different paths that we would take when we're really trying to get to mostly the same place right and and i've been having this conversation with my oldest uh daughter lately who's who's getting ready to leave the home and travel and she's got some concerns about some certain parts of the country or certain groups that she might end up finding herself in and we had a conversation around you know i think you'll find that when you're with people um you know in in relationship with each other we're all pretty much the same right we all we veer off in different tangents but we're all very much the same but when you talk about people in terms of like organizations or groups and you start putting these other labels on them that's when that's when we start to like get sort of in that place where like well they're democrats or they're republicans or they're this or they're that and it's like well yeah i got a lot of republican friends that i'm very close with and that i love dearly and that but I don't necessarily align with the Republicans, right? Or so it's like people, persons versus people is a is a very different thing. And I think sometimes we just get so wrapped up in these labels. And it's like, well, half the half the people that are fall into that label don't necessarily align with every single thing that 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 label comes with. You know, but we have to be able to be with them and talk with them and discuss those and have dialogue. Right. Like that's one of the big things I see lately happening. You know, it's, it's been labeled cancel culture, but I don't don't think that's really, it's just really this, this idea that we're not going to talk. We're not going to, we're not going to exchange ideas for fear that I may have to defend mine or you may have to, and we might find out, you know, that, that everything I think isn't, you know, etched in stone. There might be some, some things that we're still trying to unpack a little bit. Um, Yeah. And, and, you know, we could do a whole podcast on cancel culture just by itself because of the power mm-hmm. of, of what social media can bring to a thought and, yeah. you know, radical or not, um, you know, you can find someone who believes what you believe and they're just looking for somebody to say it first. And then you can basically cancel somebody out of their existence. But um, yeah. You know, and that all of that's happened throughout history. I mean, how many millions of people have been killed in the name of God? I mean, you think about the Crusades and you think about all these mm-hmm. things along the way, and the Bible's filled with story after story. Um, and there's actually a theory that came out over the past few years called Bibledology, where someone worships the Bible so literally that they don't actually live out the tenets of what God's teaching us. And so, you know, and the Bible itself becomes an idol. And so, yeah. um, and, and if you look at all of this combined, the best thing we can do is become aware of everything we possibly can that connects us to God and to one another, and then find a path that makes sense. And hopefully along the way, be able to have enough information to know that maybe i'm in a place that isn't going to be safe for me Uh, 
And I'd much rather have someone who's racist tell me what they think to my face because I always know where they stand. Plus, I know they're probably not going to lie to me because they've already said that. So yeah. um, it's the people who uh, are really good at, at saying one thing to you and something different to somebody else that bothers yeah. How do you how do you work or how would you answer someone who says, you know, well, the Bible says this, the Bible says that, because well, for me, part of the reason why I ask this is, is you're definitely more uh, educated on the context of the Bible and, and, and all of those things. Right. When I walked away from the church in, a, in, a, in my young adulthood, um, it was because I felt in some way that the Bible had been weaponized against people. And it was just guilt and shame and check boxes and things that if you don't do this, it's fire and brimstone and all that, which is technically all in the Bible. And, and, but I, I'm curious, like, how, how do you approach someone who I'm sure is a pastor, they've come to you and said, well, I would love to come to church, but there's this one passage that just prevents me from doing that. So I would say, which of the 135 plus versions of the English speaking Bible are you using? Um, because if the Bible you're reading teaches hate and anger, you need to find a new religion and a new Bible. So uh, that would be the first thing I'd say. Um, any verse taken out of context can be used to prove a point, good or bad. And people have done that for millennia. As long as this has been even a verbal story and, uh, you know, pre-Jesus times before anything was ever placed on a tablet, people have used that language to justify the good and the bad that occurs on the planet. And so my context comes from uh, where I believe the Bible is a book of love. It gives examples, it gives stories, but it was also written in context of the time and the place and the person who was writing it. And oh, by the way, they were all men. So, um, you know, it's not to discount the Bible. Uh, I believe it is the word of God, but I also believe it is meant to be interpreted. I believe it needs to be held in context and studied thoroughly because if you are a literalist, you're going to discover what I think three versions of the creation story. Um, you know, you're going to find parables that contradict themselves. Um, you're going to find things that just don't make sense. And so if you're a literalist, you're going to have a tough time with the Bible, regardless yeah. of which version it is. Um, yet people find comfort in the literal nature of the Bible because they don't have to think um, or interpret for themselves. And so it's not as easy as it sounds to just follow and be a Bible-based um, congregation or tradition. Um, and I would simply say, if you read this this particular way, I want you to find four more versions of the Bible different than that. I want you to read it and I want you to read the chapter before the chapter after. And then I want you to get on the internet instead of the socioeconomic position of the country that that book was written in. Yeah. Because let's that. Paul, 
<laughs> Paul's my favorite writer. Um, I mean, let's face it, the guy has one of the best stories in the Bible. Um, yeah. But <laughs> let's face it, he got beat up and thrown out of every town he ever went to. So, <laughs> you know, and, and um, tradition holds that he wasn't that great of a speaker. His message was compelling and people yeah. bought into it. But somewhere along the way, he, in a biblical way, pissed off a lot of people and they would beat him up, throw him in jail or throw him out of town. Yeah. He is the most colorful character in the Bible, from my point of view. Yeah. Love, 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 love reading everything about that. But you can't just read one of the 13 letters from Paul uh, without figuring out where he was sitting at the time when he wrote it. Timothy yeah. is one of the first and second Timothy are two of the most um, misinterpreted books of the Bible. But then really? if you look, oh yeah, because if you read it too literally, it's saying that the message about what um, women not being able to teach in church, for instance, second Timothy, um, you know, if you hold that as a literalist, you're going to carry that into your everyday life now. Yeah, But if you take into consideration the audience that he was speaking to, where he was predominantly uh, in a community filled with prostitutes and a lot of litigious activity, you know, mm -hmm. yeah, maybe they shouldn't be teaching in the church if they yeah. are in church in the morning and on their back in the afternoon. I mean, that yeah. doesn't make sense. So it's not necessarily women across. Exactly. It's these women, right? Exactly. So you have to understand I'm, the audience. Yeah, it's interesting you brought up Timothy because that is a book that for some reason uh, I've been drawn to lately. So I just started reading uh, First Timothy. Um, and I just I think there's been some scriptures that people have shared from that particular book that have really resonated with me. Um, mm -hmm. But I want to flip to this other thing because I, I some people... And, you know, that's what I love about these conversations. They go all over the place. Um, oh, yeah. And, and and I think that there's bits and pieces of all of it that people will need to hear. Um, uh, but I'm curious, some people are, are against religion or against, you know, coming back to church or going to church because they feel like it's a, a men's club. And, yeah. and there's, there's a lot of language in the Bible that, some people feel is 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 pro-man and anti-female or, or or there's this idea that like a woman should serve a man and, and vice versa my understanding and, and and a lot of the education that i've had around it is that like jesus was the first feminist like women mm -hmm. had no rights back then and i mean the number of women that he spoke to um i just recently heard a message around the woman in the well and yep. and was just i mean blown away at, at the conversation one but two the person presenting it was able to share a lot of the context of of what that meant for him to speak to that person and how it was just unheard of and i'm wondering if you have any thoughts on like you know how do we change that narrative is that just is it by just modeling that behavior is it by you know opening those conversations um because there's so many, there's so many, it's almost like, what is it, the, the, the louder, the, the, you know, there's a phrase out there about the, the, the loudest person, you know, the loudest critic or whatever. That seems to be the pro-male, pro, 
you know, idea. And I'm wondering how we shift that narrative if we can, or, or what your just what your thoughts are around that. Yeah. So that's a tough one because this has been going on for millennia too. I mean, (laughs) you know, um, and I, I more often hear churches, um, referred to as a country club more than a sausage fest uh, I'll just be candid with you it's it's more about um people thinking you want me to look like you act like you give like you uh participate like you um and and then oh and by the way i need to give something to the church i can get the same thing if i go down to the tennis club or the golf club or the yacht club i mean why uh, and then you have the group of people which I was more closely associated with, which was sort of the the Marxian, uh, but the Groucho Marx group, <laughs> where I wouldn't belong to any organization that would have me as a member. So, <laughs> right. right. <laughs> so <laughs> that that would be, yeah. I mean, <laughs> why in the world would I want to belong to something that would like me? But yeah. you know, in the so, but to the meat of what you're saying is it's back to vulnerability and the consistency. Mm. Men in particular have to be vulnerable enough to look at the context and the message of the Bible in a more vulnerable way and maybe realize that just because uh, we have an extra appendage doesn't make us better, smarter, or whatever. Uh, yeah. Mechanically, by testosterone and other things, we are stronger. Um, and, and, you know, I get that, but that's a physical, it's not a mental, it's not an intelligence. It's not anything that, that really matters. That's the pragmatic approach. Yeah. And it's like one of a hundred attributes. It's not. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so, you know, so I think it starts with messages from, uh, people probably like me that says, um, you know, it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to look at this just because you're asking questions and looking at this from a different point of view doesn't mean that you're weak or that you're abandoning what you hold dear. What it does is it allows you to look at it through the perspective of a, a woman, a perspective of anyone who'd be considered the other. And, and by the way, one of the populations that churches historically have not done well with are people with differing abilities, whether it's cognitive or physical disability. We all need to improve on how we welcome people. Uh, And it starts with simple access with the proper ramps and doors and seating. And then it goes to being accepting of someone who maybe stands up in the middle of a sermon uh, with uh, that has Down syndrome and walks up and hugs the pastor in the middle of a sermon and being okay with that. Yeah, we have a long way to go with that. Um, yeah. So it's vulnerability, awareness, and research. And, and frankly, it has to start with the men because we're the ones who are keeping it from happening. Yeah. And um, if you do a Bible study, and I would, I would challenge you even in your small group, do a minimum of three readings of the same verse from three different versions of the Bible, and then talk about the differences along with the message that it's being provided. Because depending upon the era in which it was written, 
depending upon the input from uh, Qumran after the scrolls were discovered, all of that comes into play and it influences the cultural aspect of the approach. Uh, one of the more, um, what's the word? It's not as respected, but one of the best researched versions of the Bible, believe it or not, is the message. And the Thank message you. is written by a Bible theologian and author and, and a, a yeah. tremendous scholastic mind. Yeah, it's actually the version I prefer to read. So I was going to, I was hesitant to ask you, do you have a favorite version? Because, uh, you know, there's so many and, and you've mentioned multiple times using different versions to sort of cross-reference and kind of find that. So I, was, I wasn't going to ask you that, but that is actually the, the one that I tend to read the most um currently but i do also like i use the bible app often and you can have be in a chapter and just bounce from version to version very easily yeah. um so uh, the new revised standard version and the message are my two favorite really yeah um All right. uh, so i'm doing something right it's from yeah, yeah by far <laughs> uh, and and it's a personal choice that doesn't matter which two three or four you look at it's that you're not just holding yourself to one yeah um, you, you have to get that perspective and if they all are written the same then that's a pretty solid you know testimony that that verse says what it was meant to say yeah but um the reason i like the the nrsv and a lot of the versions in the latter part of the 20th century is because they were amended, edited, and written after the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So they take that into consideration at Qumran. That was in 1947. So anything post-1955, 1960, in my opinion, if it uses that as its resource, not only resource, but as a resource, as a resource yeah. then it's going to be more accurate, in my opinion. Yeah. And, well, and I, 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 I certainly value that, your opinion. Yeah. I love, I love hearing that. Um, and that's good because I think there's a lot of people that, that, and, and that's just the thing, man, when they say the Bible, I, I often kind of go probably because you and I've had this conversation in different formats before, but it's like, well, which, which translation, which version, and then which, what interpretation of that version slash translation are you, are you taking? Because I've had conversations people around scripture and i try not to in previous in a previous life i was very literalist and so one of the questions i would love to ask you is you know how do you get somebody who's a literalist to not be and for me my experience was just i had to get humbled you know i had to i had to uh, uh, i happened to fall into a series called the bible for adults and it dove right into you know, it took 400 years to write the Bible and it's written in this time period and over this, over this and the context and the audience. And a lot of the books of the Bibles are letters to different groups. And those groups had different contexts and, you know, like know your audience kind of thing. And it really humbled me to go, man, I don't know what I'm talking about here. And, and I need to kind of rethink this thing. Um, but, but, you know, I'm, I'm curious to know like what is that what do you say to a literalist like how do you how would you coach them into because i think this applies you know we've talked a lot about um you know sort of a a, a, 
of faith-based lens, but this applies, in my opinion, to how we parent, how we co-work, how we how we interact with other people, because it's all leadership stuff, right? Like we can we can talk about that and then go, oh, and as a Christian, I want to follow that because it's part of my faith. But as a non-Christian, I think people listening to this who or people who may not be Christian can listen to this and go, well, that just makes sense. That's just that's just how we should treat each other, right? So there's a couple of things that I, I would say to that. One is, um, you know, a lot of times you like to go back to the source to have something to compare to. So, uh, and I would, you know, challenge you to do this with your small group, get a parallel Bible that has either the message or um, the new revised standard version on one side and have the Greek on the other side. And under the Greek would be the English interpretation of that Greek word. You're going to find it is less gender specific um, it's going to have different definitions and approaches to love. I mean, you know, we, you get into the whole agape and how the word's used, but um, those are readily available. You can go to um, Amazon right now and get one. And it's, you know, get the Greek um, so that it has the English subtext under it. So it's interpreting the Greek, not an interpretation of the Bible. And on the other side is the version that you like the most that is an eye-opener by itself so that's one thing the other thing is to prove a point get 30 young adults um, that would be the equivalent of 30 you know young monks back in the 12 13 14 middle middle medieval uh, times set them in a room and you as the senior scribe in the room read the text and they write it down. That's how the Bible was duplicated until the late 1500s and the invention of the printing press. So, and, and there have been studies done that indicate, you know, whether it be through oral tradition or through a scribe telling, reading out loud to the 30 people who were duplicating the book. And that's all they did every day. And you'd get a, a new version or a new copy, not version. You'd get a new copy of the Bible because Keith sat in a room for a year and wrote it by hand, listening to somebody like Rip read it out loud. How many mistakes do you think you'd make sitting eight hours a day scribing? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You're not a, you're not a person necessarily called by God. You just, you didn't have a choice. Yeah. And then let's say they used your copy that was wrong. The next time it was read to 30 people who copied it. Right. The next time 30 people. Yeah. So, so the, the Protestant revolution would not have happened without the invention of the printing press. Yeah. Did you know that? No, I didn't. I didn't. And what, what I'm hearing is I've, I've had people in my life and I may have repeated this myself in a derogatory sense is like, you know, the, the Bible is, is kind of the end result of, of a 400 year old game of telephone. <laughs> right. And, yeah. and the reality is, is that in some ways that's sounds it's like handy. it's true. Right. But also like what I'm hearing you say, and what I'm learning from this, and, and, and I love this, is that the Bible, when I think of the Bible, I think of a book. 
And it's not even that it's like, I don't even have an analogy that I can think of at the moment, but it's like, it's almost like when we, instead of thinking of the Bible as like a singular thing, it's almost like calling it a village or because it, it really, it, what, what I'm hearing you say is that it's, it is this foundational thing, but it's a living thing. Right. And, and it's not, it's, it, you can't take it literally. I don't believe you can. I think you have to take the message. I think it's meant to be interpreted because that prevents it from being the culmination of a 400 year telephone game. Yeah. Is that by letting it be a living document, it comes to life differently for people every day. Different times. You are willing to let that happen. But it's super helpful, I think. And I hope people that are listening to this um, will hear this and and if you're not reading a bible if you're not if you're not engaged in some sort of spiritual journey that this will spark them into taking a second look at it or you know maybe checking out your church online and hearing you speak about those things and and i think that's super important and i think also like these things just really resonate i think with people who are trying to be better humans you know, the idea of creating better relationships, the idea of, I think for me, what I'm also hearing you say is like, we need to slow down a little bit. Like the idea, you know, of reading scripture isn't just reading scripture. It's reading three layers of scripture. It's cross-referencing those. It's going online. It's listening to another speaker. That means that I can't react. I have to respond to all of these different things. And and I think that works in our work. I think it works in our parenting. I think, I think if people hear this and take some of that to heart, they have to be vulnerable in, in, in admitting areas in which they need some support or to do things differently. And I think also there's a, there's a real level of accountability in that and going, well, maybe I don't know all the things I think I know. And if I slow down and unpack them a little bit, then my, my perceptions and, and beliefs will be a little bit different. I think that's a powerful message. But I don't think we individually can do that on our own. I think that's why the small groups are so important is because it, it brings out these different thoughts because yeah. let's face it, any of us could adjust the Bible to fit our needs if we chose to. Yeah. Well, I think and most of us would... Is would naturally want to yeah. that's our natural inclinations go well it's right there yeah i think community community is super important for that i've i've had this dream uh and i've been sober for 18 years now so it won't happen but i've had this dream of going back to like i want five or six people in a room with a scotch or a brandy and a book and no television and we're all just talking about whatever's happening and having those heated spirited debates that you know, have been idolized and romanticized in television and movies. Um, because I think that's what we need. I think we need to be challenged and we need to challenge others and have those communities where we can do that. And then at the same time, we all show up for work the next day and we're still friends. Yeah. <laughs> we're still able to go grab a burger together. So here's some fun things that listeners could do um, to sort of understand how interpretation can work. Um, if you're a married couple, um, you could read the Song of Solomon 
and use it in a seductive, uh, almost foreplay approach because it's that's not what it's about, but it gets misinterpreted all the time for that. And if you okay. read it from that lens, it, it's interesting. And okay. so, and I, then, like that. I like that idea. So, and then if you get so hung up about where the commas are in a Bible verse that, you know, you think that changes the whole context, then you're someone who studies linguistics and English to a level that the majority of the world's population never has. Right. And yet the way we verbalize something is going to be really, um, can be really impactful. How many ways do you think you can say the word no? Oh, uh -huh. yeah, absolutely. So no. It's infinite. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. I mean, it's the way that people end up reading Bible verse. Yeah. And the way it comes out gets interpreted by the listener because the speaker may not be prepared. And so when you're in a small group, that's why you want to rotate the reading is to allow people to have their take on how, on what they're reading. But if it's a Bible study, that's a lot different than a Bible reading. Yeah. Studies where you dig into the different versions, you look at the yeah. socioeconomic times. I mean, who was Caesar at the time? What was the tax? Um, you know, Paul was in prison in Rome. Uh, which Caesar was that? What was the tax? You know, what was the life like for people like him on the streets? All that has to be context and talked about before you yeah. read the chapter of the Bible. Yeah. Well, and I think that all applies to what we experience today, you know, and, and all of those things. I mean, you know, you hear stories, you see people, you hear a, a, a blurb about a person, whether it's at work or whatever the case may be. And, and are we taking into consideration what's happening in their home life? What's happening? You know, what was their background growing up? What is their financial situation? Right. What are the priorities in their life? Right. And I think that's where it's so important for me to, and I try to educate my kids and I try to expose others to the idea that really, you know, it's what does love require of me? And that's, that's to ask that question. Well, what's going on in your life? Like, why did this happen? How can, what, what was your reasoning or what was the context around your choices or your decisions? And I mean, I apply that to my kids often, they do stuff. And, you know, my kid, <laughs> my kids will start crying every time. And I'm like, why? I don't want to get in trouble. And I'm like, but we're just having a conversation. You know, it's like, I just want to know how you landed at this choice because I'm confused by your choice. And I could take your, the results of your choices on the face of it and you could get punished and you could, you know, there would be consequences, but I'm more interested in understanding how you came to this place so that we can help you understand how not to in the future. And because I love you, I want to support you. I don't want to punish you. And it's just, it's a total mindset shift that, you know, it's, it's part of the reason why I do this and talk to fascinating people like yourself who, who have lived this out and are really in, in it and unpacking things and not just taking them at face value. And I mean, how many people at 50 decide they're going to go get their master's in divinity when they're on this other career path that quite frankly is really successful and, 
Yeah, thanks, man. Doing really well. So, I mean, I could talk to you for days. We could do a part two and three. Um, and, <laughs> Anytime. And I'm, I'm super grateful for you taking the time to do this today and for your insight. And, you know, hopefully uh, anybody listening will will take small bits and pieces. I have myself, and so I know other people will. And just thanks for your time. You bet. It's great to be with you. I love you, brother, man. Same. Same. We'll have to do this again. Thank you.